1: Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's Talking Biotech podcast by Collabra. I live sort of a hypocritical existence. In plants, I can tell you about the elaborate different systems that sense and monitor the environment and tell you how they integrate together to control growth and development, behaviors, and metabolism. In animals, though, I'm a little bit more old school anatomy and physiology and tend to think of the body's different systems like they appear in the textbook, the nervous system, digestive system, the endocrine, reproductive, skeletal, muscular, whatever. Different systems in each chapter. Now, of course, they all interact and respond to each other, and those with a more sophisticated understanding understand the role that hormones play to link the systems together. Still, I've always compartmentalized Animal and human physiology into these discrete buckets. But biology never is so simple. Today, we're learning more and more about the communication that happens between the digestive system and the brain. The digestive system, it's a place of constant change and necessary for acquiring nutrition, water, things like that. The nervous system, on the other hand, the steadfast hard drive. Making decisions on inputs from the other systems. But how does the digestive system communicate with the brain? What is this neurological limb called the gut brain axis? And how might it be a target for either disease prevention or therapeutics? And today's guest is Nancy Thornberry. She's the founding CEO and chair of research and development at Calliope. So, welcome to the podcast, Nancy.
2: Thank you very much, Kevin. I'm delighted to be here. I think
1: it's really a fun topic. And over the years, I've been a little bit skeptical of, because I tend to think of physiology, as I mentioned before, as very compartmentalized linear systems, working within themselves, maybe with a little overlap here and there. But the idea of communication between the digestive system and the brain always seemed a little too far for me. So could you tell me a little bit more about how I was wrong and about this gut-brain axis?
2: Sure. So probably the reason that this area seemed a little far out for you is because there really has not been a detailed molecular understanding of the communication between the gut and the brain. So the gut-brain axis is formally defined as the bidirectional communication between the gut and the brain. And it typically involves both hormonal circuits, so hormones that are released from the gut in response to a variety of stimuli that communicate with the brain and other organs, or the nervous system, where there are nerves that project from the gut to the brain directly in this bidirectional communication, controlling many aspects of physiology.
1: So what's really interesting about this is that it is bidirectional. So the digestive system is communicating information up to the nervous system, to the brain, which is part of the nervous system, and then back the other direction. And you mentioned hormones, but are they the signals or, or what are the signals that are triggering the communication between these two very different compartments?
2: Right, so it is hormonal and neural. So, it's, so for example, you could picture when you eat a meal, your, your stomach distends. And so there are stretch receptors in your stomach that communicate via the nervous system to your brain. When nutrients get further down into the intestine, hormones are released um, depending on where the nutrients actually are in the gut. And they communicate with the brain and the pancreas, for example, to stimulate insulin secretion. Or in the case of the brain to modulate feeding centers.
1: Okay, so what's really interesting about this is that there has to be a huge suite of different signals. So what are some of these signals? I know you've mentioned insulin, but what are some of the other ones that we don't normally think of? And and what are their sensors like? What's connecting the digestive system to that central nervous system?
2: Right. So let's take metabolism. So There are many areas of physiology that have been linked to gut-brain biology, but metabolism is probably the best understood. So in this case, again, as nutrients enter the small intestine, there are specific receptors that sit on what are called intraendocrine cells that are in the gut. These are cells that are in the epithelium, and it really represents the largest secretory system in the body. And by binding to these receptors, it triggers the release of multiple hormones, more than a dozen. And these hormones have various functions. So some of them bind to receptors in the brainstem, for example, and they're triggering circuits that give one, for example, a feeling of satiety to trigger your body to stop eating. There are other hormones that bind to receptors on beta cells in the pancreas. So these are the insulin-producing cells and trigger insulin secretion, which of course is vital for managing the your the glucose that one is basically absorbing during food ingestion. Does that make sense?
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's perfect. That's a good example of maybe... One hormone and one pathway that can play a role in this process. I guess what I'm really interested in is how deep this goes with, reque- with respect to questions like, say, deficiency, a vitamin deficiency, something like that. Do we get cravings because our brain is sensing something from the gut that's not quite there, something physiological or biochemical that the brain is saying, hey, we haven't seen this nutrient for a while and, and maybe we need to ask for it? Is that what this is all about?
2: Yeah, it's so interesting you would ask that because this whole area of food preference is a really hot area right now. And there's certainly evidence that this is controlled via gut-brain circuits, that there are certain preferences for food. And, and this is determined, for example, by the release of dopamine in the brain. So certain food types may stimulate either hormones or various receptors on the vagus nerve to then produce dopamine in the brain that gives you a feeling of, um, you know, feeling of pleasure. And so that may dictate the preference for a particular food type. So this is a very active area of investigation that I think is, is incredibly interesting. And really holds promise for the whole area of nutrition and metabolism going forward. Well, you really just helped me
1: understand how a friend of mine loves kimchi, but I hate it. (laughs) For him, it's a cultural touchstone. It reminds him of mom, of comfort food. And for him, it's something that probably connects with like a dopamine surge when he hasn't had it for a while and finally gets it or even smells it. So I guess you see where I'm going here. Is there really a way that the gut is asking for something potentially based upon what are really just cultural cues?
2: Yes, it's so interesting. And again, back to your initial comment, the reason that this has been a poorly understood system, and this is the whole idea behind Calliope, is to build a more comprehensive understanding of what we call this circuitry between the gut and the brain. So again, this is hormonal circuitry. It's neural circuitry, sometimes it's a combination of both. And it's really only been in the last decade or so that the technologies, the tools have been available that enable us to start to dissect this system at a molecular level. So I'll give you an example, understanding how a particular hormone, where that hormone interacts with its receptor. It could be, for example, on the vagus nerve, which is the primary neural conjugate between the gut and the brain. It might instead travel, the hormone might travel through the circulation to interact with the receptors that are in the brainstem, which is just outside the blood-brain barrier. And from there, you can use additional technologies called optogenetics and chemogenetics that allow you to understand the function of the cell that contains that receptor. For example, does it stimulate dopamine release in the brain? And so I can go into more detail, but essentially there are a variety of new technologies when integrated together that can help you actually map these circuits and give you a better understanding of the the physiology. And that was really the basis for Calliope, the whole idea behind the company. But see, that makes sense to
1: me. That you would have certain molecules that are associated with the gut and digestion, things like insulin, things like, you know, ghrelin or leptin, other types of molecules, which have roles in stimulating different responses that we understand are associated with, with digestion and metabolism. But what about when you start to step out into other issues like Alzheimer's or autism? And people have mentioned for a long time, okay, there's this gut-brain axis that plays a role in autism or plays a role in, in you know, other neurological disease. That kind of seems like a little bridge too far for me. So how much evidence is there that this gut-brain axis is actually influencing these kinds of conditions like, like Alzheimer's or autism?
2: Yeah, there are very, varying degrees of evidence for some of these other areas. So when I think of the gut-brain axis and we think at Calliope about disease areas that are relevant to this system, we think about metabolism. We do think about neuroscience, and I'll get to that in a bit. We think about gastrointestinal disorders since the gut-brain axis controls gut motility, for example, and even diseases of immunology and inflammation because the, the gut is actually the largest immune organ in the body. So part of the reason actually I joined Bay in 2015 was because of the very broad opportunity that this better understanding of the system really presented to develop therapeutics to improve human health. But back to your question on neuro, I would say that this is the area that's the most challenging to understand in terms of potential connections between the gut and the brain but there's certainly an increasing body of evidence that there is such a connection. When you talk about autism, I think it's generally true that parents of autistic children say diet is, is critical in helping to essentially, well, said a different way that, that perturbations to the diet can have a dramatic effect on behavior. There is evidence from preclinical models, and I believe some human studies as well, showing differences in the microbiome, which is also a very critical component of this system in patients with autism. But for other diseases, there's even, I would say, stronger evidence. Parkinson's disease. So this disease is is believed to be caused by alpha-synuclein, which is a protein aggregates in the brain. And this results in some of the manifestations of Parkinson's disease. Well, it's now clear that these aggregates also occur in the gut, in the enteric nervous system. And in fact, constipation is an early manifestation of Parkinson's disease in some patients. So this has led to a hypothesis for which there is increasing evidence that these alpha synuclein aggregates can actually travel from the gut to the brain via the vagus nerve, similar to some of the work you may have heard around prions. So again, it's an early hypothesis, but one that's super interesting in it and suggests this gut-brain connection in Parkinson's disease. The other thing I would note is vagal nerve stimulation, because the efficacy of vagal nerve stimulation in certain diseases can give us a clue as to whether or not the gut-brain axis is involved in specific diseases. So vagal nerve stimulation has been approved for epilepsy has been approved for some forms of migraine and cluster headache, and also for treatment-resistant depression. And so that also gives us a clue that by modulating the system, we may have potential for the development of therapeutics in those disease areas.
1: Well, how useful are animal models in talking about the gut-brain axis?
2: Yeah, that's an excellent question. So what I can tell you is from our work and the work of others, as it relates to metabolism, these circuits appear to be quite well conserved, as you might imagine, since beating is kind of so fundamental to life kind of across the board. So the animal models have been pretty predictive in that space. How predictive they will be for some of these other areas, I think is still unclear.
1: Yeah, I guess I was thinking about other human disorders. So you mentioned Parkinson's disease and its potential reliance on gut and brain communication. But this is a late onset disease in most cases anyway. So is there any kind of genetic predisposition or any other kind of evidence that suggests that there's some sort of change in a receptor or a ligand that may be predisposition, predisposing a microbiome to Parkinson's disease or other disorders?
2: You know, I, I can't give you an example. This is, I know there's a lot of work in this space. And in fact, at Calliope, we're doing a lot of the, co- the type of computational mapping that you described in order to first understand, you know, where, what the circuits are, which ligands are communicating with receptors and where they are. And then we've also developed a proprietary human genetics platform where we're looking for genetic links to disease that can be that we can explore once we have a better understanding of the circuitry. So again, this is work that I think is resulting from this better understanding of that brain communication that's emerging.
1: Yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to throw a speculative one at you there, but it's really intriguing to me. And maybe a place where a little more work has been done has been with something like GLP-1. Could you explain more what that is and how that's being targeted to treat type 2 diabetes?
2: Yes. So GLP-1 or glucagon like peptide 1, I would say, is the poster child gut hormone. So this is a hormone that's released in response to food intake. It's actually, as I described earlier, released from these secretory cells in the gut uh, in response to nutrients binding to specific Receptors. So, by nutrients, I mean free fatty acids, for example. And it is released from the gut. It's called an incretin hormone, and that is because it's one of two hormones that stimulate glucose-dependent insulin secretion. Again, by binding the receptors, sit on beta cells in the pancreas, and and trigger insulin secretion. But very importantly, in a glucose-dependent way, which means there's a very low risk of hypoglycemia with GLP-1-based therapies. And so these therapeutics, really GLP-injectable versions of GLP-1 and a different play in the GLP-1 space called DPP-4 inhibitors that I was very involved in during my tenure at Merck. These have been become the most important drugs for the treatment of type 2 diabetes in the last two decades. They, they came out in 20, 2005, 2006. And they've continued to play an incredibly important role in the treatment of this disease. More recently, it's become more clear that GLP-1 also binds to receptors, as I mentioned earlier, that are in other regions of the gut-brain axis, including the hindbrain, and control feeding. So they are also satiety hormones that basically induce a feeling of satiety, and so The more recent GLP-1 analogs have been optimized for weight loss. And so for really the first time, those of us who work in a therapeutic space in metabolism are very excited because for the very first time, we now have GLP-1 analogs that are producing 10, 15, close to 20% weight loss, which is really a game changer in the field.
1: Well, that's outstanding. And, you know, we've been looking for solutions for things like type 2 diabetes or obesity, other diet-related disorders for a long time. So what's really different today? What's made this relatively unexplored area of biology possible as a a realistic therapeutic?
2: Right. So with GLP-1, it's, you know, even though, again, these have both been the most important therapeutics in the last two decades, we're still learning about exactly how they work, exactly which neurons in the brainstem GLP-1 interacts with, and how that's triggering feeding centers. And it's with an increased understanding of that biology that you could then really optimize these analogs to produce the type of weight loss that we're currently seeing. But in terms of other potential approaches to diabetes and obesity and other diseases associated with gut-brain biology. I'd like to just briefly walk you through what's really needed in order to understand this. So when you think about the gut-brain axis, you think about the gut and the brain, but it also involves the enteric nervous system, which is the sheath of nerves that surround the gut, often called the second brain that also has connectivity to the brain itself. You need to think about the microbiome. You need to think about the immune populations in the gut. And so to get an understanding of all of this, where we started was with single cell sequencing. So as you and your viewers may know, this enables you to really understand what all of the different specialized cell types are in a particular organ. And that's where we started by saying, okay, we want to understand what every specialized cell type is in all of those regions of the gut-brain axis that I mentioned. Because in so doing, then you can take it to the next step, which is understanding the circuitry. You know, what ligands are produced in the gut and where do we think they're finding in the rest of the gut-brain axis? And then we can turn to technologies such as what I mentioned earlier in terms of optogenetics and chemogenetics, which is an amazing technology developed in the system's neuroscience field that allows us to get genetic control over specific neurons and activate them either with light or with a ligand to a designer receptor such that we're only activating that neuron. And then we look at the resulting physiology. So for example, we can activate a neuron and see, look for effects on feeding, or we can activate a neuron and look at effects on cytokines. Whatever behavior or readout you can imagine can be explored using that approach. And so this enables us to not only understand what the cells are, but understand their functions and how they function in a circuit. So this is the kind of work that's giving us real insights into the molecular underpinnings of the gut-brain axis that we believe will help result in the next generation of therapeutics.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting because of all of the dysbioses that we already understand that are dependent upon the gut-brain axis, and then all of the others that are so speculative and potentially there, that, that may be really important and can unfold once you understand what they are, what the pathways are, and then ways to modulate them pharmacologically. So this is really cool. So we're speaking with Nancy Thornberry. She's the original founding CEO and chair of research and development at Calliope. This is the Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra, and we'll be back in just a moment.
0: This episode is brought to you by Calabra, the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Collabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Collabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P
1: And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra, and we're speaking with Nancy Thornberry. She's the founding CEO and Chair of Research and Development at Kelly and we're talking about the brain-gut axis and this series of circuits, bidirectional circuits, that are intertwined to continually monitor the, the status of the digestive system and connect it to the central nervous system. And it seems to be playing a bigger role in a wide set of different diseases and disorders. Leope is designing new therapeutics that may be able to help and solve some of these important problems. Now, one of the underappreciated parts of this is the enteric nervous system, the second brain. So what are its roles? Are they just in digestion or are there bigger roles in communication between the gut and the brain?
2: Yeah, so that's a great question. And this... The enteric nervous system is is not well understood, and it lines the gut. So there are different, likely very different functions of the enteric nervous system depending on you know which part of the intestine it's proximal to. But clearly, the enteric nervous system has been known to play an important role in gut motility. You know, as we have done single or performed single cell sequencing on the enteric nervous system, we now understand what all of the neuronal cell types are. So we are seeing receptors for some of the hormones that are released from the enterendocrine cells. There appears to be crosstalk between the immune system and the enteric nervous system. But again, this is a very poorly understood area. And with the technologies that we're developing and are part of our platform, we actually have a very active effort at trying to understand the functions of individual enteric neur-
1: neurons. And this is really interesting stuff. Not only are you getting signals from, say, the food that you're eating and the hormones that it triggers, but also the metabolites that are coming through bacterial activity within the microbiome. And how much of a role do these metabolites play when they're signaling brain-gut axis?
2: Yeah, that's a, that's also just an incredibly cool area of... of Of work, as you know, the microbiome is incredibly complex, and so I would say untangling the biology of the microbiome may be even more daunting than uh, really untangling the biology of the gut-brain axis. But nevertheless, it's very clear that the microbiome is extremely important, and the metabolites that it produces. Many of the metabolites do bind to some of the receptors, for example, that nutrients bind to bind to other uh, receptors that sit on the epithelium of the gut. And so clearly are very likely play an important role there. And again, this is an area that's in its infancy, I would say, in terms of our understanding of exactly how these metabolites are working at a molecular level. What I will um, also tell you is one other component of our platform are organoids. And so I don't know if you're viewers are familiar with organoids or your listeners, but essentially these are organ systems in a test tube. And so we do quite a lot of work with gut organoid where we take samples from different parts of the intestine and we actually grow these into uh, what we call actually enteroids because they're from the epithelium of the gut. And using these systems, you can start to interrogate, for example, how a particular microbiome metabolite works. You can add that metabolite to the test tube with the organoid in it, and you can see um, stimulation of various hormones. You can start to untangle that biology. And what's exciting about that, that gets back to your earlier question on translation, is that we have found that the correspondence between what you see in mice, and from mouse organoids in a test tube to mice in vivo, and to human organoids in a test tube, that there's excellent correspondence. So we believe it's a really good translational model for starting to understand the biology the metabolites, not only in mice, but in humans.
1: And that's a really cool system. It's really neat. And I guess if you're going to be looking for a needle in a haystack, you really need the most powerful system to do that especially because it would seem to me that in the complex microbiome you may have some very minor species that could be secreting some sort of metabolite which could have a profound effect on something like say you know depression or something like that is, is that consistent with the way that you're thinking at this point
2: i think those are the questions to to ask for sure and there are we're not working on the microbiome per se other than the types of experiments I just described, where we're looking to see how metabolites interact with receptors in the gut. But there are labs that have shown that particular metabolites can have a pretty profound role on behavior in preclinical species. So whether or not that will translate to people remains to be determined. But it's a super exciting area. And I think just, again, certainly gets me extremely excited about the future in this space. There's an increasing interest, I think, not only in the lay community, but the scientific community is working very hard on these various aspects of gut brain biology. Microbiome gut brain is another term. And I think that over the next couple of decades, we're going to learn a tremendous amount that'll hopefully be helpful for the discovery of therapeutics.
1: Yeah, yeah. This is really blowing me away. And I'll be honest, for a long time, I just thought this was complete BS. I thought there's no way that there's something in the intestine that's informing your brain of some sort of issues that could affect the chemistry within the brain. And so I'm really turned a corner on this in the last couple of years. And I've really believed that this is an important question to look at. Here's a good question, though. If you look at different cultures around the world who have maybe rather discrete regional diets, maybe who are relatively genetically rather homogeneous, and if you look at these populations, such as maybe the Japanese or Eskimo or in different groups, they have really interesting diets, real specific diets. And do they have diets that really associate with specific disease presentations Within those groups, has anyone really looked at that at that epidemiological level to see if there's something about the association?
2: Such an interesting question. I'm not aware of those studies. I would not be surprised if if there have been studies, for example, looking at the microbiome of individuals from different regions. Almost certainly that has happened, but I'm not familiar with that area. I do know that there's a fair amount of work that is ongoing. And I believe the Gates Foundation is doing, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is doing some of this work really to try and understand the gut and the microbiome in, in some of the areas of the world that are, you know, development, are, are under development and where there's quite a lot of poverty and poor nutrition in order to understand you know, what is the biology of the guts of young infants and and in, in, in women who are pregnant to see if there is an angle there where gut health can be improved.
1: Yeah, that's really excellent. I, I think we could easily do the same in the industrialized world too. If you look inside the poverty of inner city food deserts, if you look at rural areas and rural food deserts where fresh vegetables, fruit and vegetables can be scarce different times of the year, there are a lot of comorbidities that are generated because of problems in the diet, especially issues related to heart disease and obesity that accumulate. And understanding the corresponding microbiomes and, and brain-gut axis health may illuminate the opportunities for different therapeutic interventions that may actually help these target populations. So what's happening right now in terms of development of therapeutic agents that may Address some of these particular issues of brain gut access?
2: Right. So, we are really focused in three major therapeutic areas. We're working in metabolism, since, as I said earlier, that's probably the best understood area. And there's still just this remarkable unmet need in that space. In fact, globally, there are now more overweight than underweight, or more obese versus underweight uh, individuals globally. And so the magnitude of the problem is just immense. So we feel there's an incredible unmet need there. And so we're working to basically use some of the information that we obtained from our platform to elicit the release of hormones from the gut that have beneficial roles in glucose control and in in food intake. So we're targeting type 2 diabetes and obesity as an initial indication. The second program is actually around gut barrier function, which we have not spoken about, but it's an increasingly important area of research because it's clear that an intact barrier, a healthy barrier, and this is really, you know, how really the, the health of the epithelium is very important for overall health and well-being and that a defective barrier is linked to numerous diseases of high unmet need. And these include inflammatory bowel disease, allergy, celiac disease, but also you can, there's even evidence with autism to your earlier question that some of those patients may have a defective barrier, although I think more needs to be done there. So there's a whole host of diseases you can think about for something that might modulate or improve the health of the gut barrier. So that's the second major area we're focusing on. And then the third is CNS disorders. And we're particularly interested in migraine there.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. I really neglected to mention the immune response in the gut. And it's really an important question because we know about celiac disease and inflammatory bowel disease, all of these. We know this already. And it would seem like that would be really the low-hanging fruit here. So are there therapies that are being specifically designed for those disorders?
2: Well, we hope so. I mean, there are certainly really good agents that control inflammation in something like inflammatory bowel disease, but the whole area of mucosal healing or restoration of the gut barrier is an area of very active investigation. There are no agents currently improved for that purpose, but as we develop better models, it would that we can use to study this, again, going back to organoid systems, there's a lot of interest in in building these systems like in a test tube that not only include the epithelium of the gut, but where you can also introduce the immune populations. You might also be able to introduce the microbiome. In some cases, there are investigators that are working to incorporate the enteric nervous system into more or less a, you know, an ex vivo system that can be used to look for agents that may have beneficial effects on barrier function. So that's going to be a very exciting area to watch going forward, particularly if you can build those human systems and get us get a real feeling for how translational the work may be.
1: Yeah, now you're going back to this idea of translational systems. that You've mentioned the organoid-type systems for in vitro work. But are there other cool tricks that you do inside the company that give Calliope a specific way to look for these important questions?
2: Well, we're using our genetics platform, again, to try and, and, with all of our programs, to see if there's human genetics evidence for a particular pathway or a particular target that may be interesting to us. But beyond that, you know, we're really focusing primarily on these organoid systems since we have been really so, I guess, impressed with how how translational they may actually be.
1: Yeah, technology is really cool stuff. I, I really appreciate your approach. So what does that pipeline look like? I mean, your company has been looking at these novel methods to identify small molecules, which are potentially ligands and modulating the gut-brain axis. Where are we in terms of potential therapies in these three major investigation areas?
2: Right. So we're either in or approaching clinical development in those areas that I mentioned. And then, as you know, in a biotech, it's, it's very important to have programs that are continuing to come along. So behind each of those lead programs, We have earlier stage programs that are advancing, again, in each of those three major areas.
1: Are there other companies doing similar approaches and looking for the gut-brain access modulators?
2: There are other companies that are working on aspects of gut-brain biology. To the best of my knowledge, I don't know that anyone has built the fully integrated platform that we have Uh, For interrogating this biology at a systems biology level. But there are certainly companies that are working very hard on the immune system in the gut and how that communicates with the gut epithelium. And there are other, there are a number of microbiome companies that are working to do exactly what you mentioned earlier, which is to understand what communities are important in different disease states and what particular metabolites might be important, either binding to receptors in the gut or potentially absorbed and binding to proteins elsewhere in the periphery.
1: One of the other questions I frequently am asked by listeners, we have a lot of students, postdocs, other professionals who are considering a little change of gears, and they always want me to ask, when I have a CEO of a company like you on, what do you look for in someone who may work for you? So when you know if 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 I'm trying to give advice to somebody, you know what are you looking for in an employee who might be able to forge a successful career in an exciting area like this one?
2: Yeah, that's an excellent question. So we are based in New York City. New York City is a relatively new place to build a biotech, but it's been really terrific for us because because there are so many amazing institutions in New York City, and we're right next to the Pharma Corridor in New Jersey. So we have been drawing talent from all of those places. And what I like to say is where the magic happens is really the interaction from our employees that have come from academia together with those employees who have come from pharma who have kind of deep expertise in drug discovery and development. So certainly those who are listening to your podcast, who are still in academia, you know, I think that we, we really look for people who have been incredibly well-trained, not necessarily in our specific areas of interest, but training, the quality of training is critical. And then, you know, in terms of personal traits, we look very much for people who can work really, really well in a team. So teamwork and collaboration really needs to be in the DNA of a company like Calliope. And so the whole cultural fit is really equally important to the scientific background.
1: Yeah, that's really helpful because there's so many good students coming out these days and they ask me questions and I really need to start incorporating it into the podcast when I have someone like you on who can give me a good answer for that. Now, if want, people want to learn more about your company, where should they look?
2: Well, we we're we do have a website. We're currently upgrading the website, so there should be even more information going forward. I would say in terms of Just more understanding on gut and gut-brain biology. One person I would point your listeners to is Emeron Meyer from UCL. A very quick Google search will show you that he's been deeply involved in this area for a very long time. And I'm sure there's some content from him that would be really interesting to your listeners who want to know more.
1: No, very good. It's really an exciting area. And I hope that as things continue to unfold in your company, that new discoveries are happening and new products coming out, I hope you can revisit with us just because it's a fun area to think about. So, so Nancy Thornberry, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast and keep me posted as new developments come along.
2: Oh, I would be happy to. Thank you so much for having me.
1: And thank you again for listening to another episode of the Talking Biotech podcast. This is an exciting example of where researchers have been looking for some time, but it's just the perfect area of time where technology and and genomics and single cell sequencing and all the things that we can do are really starting to come together to produce new possibilities for the design of therapeutics to help different human conditions. So think about some of these novel areas. Think about some of these ways in which they could use your talents. Think of ways in which you can incorporate yourself into the cutting edge of the next generation of technologies. This is a Talking Biotech podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week.
0: You've been listening to Talking Biotech.